0: And good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to start out by thanking you for those, um, those kind notes and cards that you uh, put out in those encouragement boxes at the foyer. I really appreciate that. It, it means the world to you to know that you know, people are listening and you're well thought of. And that helps put gas in my tank. And I know it does, Kevin, and the rest of the staff, too. So thank you so much uh, for those kind notes and those cards. So now i got to get negative. And I want to talk a moment about probably my worst golf memory. I I really hate, uh, I won't say I hate golf, but I had a really bad moment. I remember I went with these two guys that were both really good, father and son. And we get to the first tee, and the first tee is always the hardest place. If if you golf, you know, everybody's watching. Everybody's looking. Let's see how he's going to do. Let's size him up here. And I went up and had a good drawback, and then swung and missed. Oh, that's just embarrassing when that happens. And then I took another swing, and I just topped the ball, and it rolled out about 20 or 30 feet, and I had just had it. This is the first hole. So I walk out that 20 or 30 feet, and I grab that golf ball, and I walk back up to the clubhouse, and I said, I'm done, and I want my money back. And they gave it back. I couldn't. I wasn't proud of myself, but I thought, I can't go through hole after hole and link after link with this kind of humiliation. And I didn't want them to think I was just being dragged behind by them. And, you know, I kind of felt like a failure. And I thought, that's just going to carry me the rest of the day. And I didn't even tell them I was leaving. I just left. Well, you know, that's kind of a rotten thing to do to somebody. And come to find out, you know, they had had mornings and games like that. And they were really ambivalent as to whether or not I started out well. You know, they told me later, well, we just kind of wanted to spend the day with you. They could have cared less about that shot I'd made. You know, I've done similar things in life. I've said things that haunt me to this day, things that pop in my mind and I have that feeling of, Shame and guilt and regret. And uh, I think we all go through this at some point. When was the last time you failed at something and you felt like it just took you out of the game? Maybe it was something that you laughed at that you shouldn't have. Maybe it was someone that you slept with that you knew you shouldn't have. You made a compromise, and you knew it was wrong when you did it. Could have been a public sin, well known, and you feel hopeless. You quit gathering with the church. You don't think you can get back the game. You don't think this can ever get put behind you. So what do you do? You decide you can't do it. You bow out. You don't think you can get back in the game. What I want to talk about this morning is, well, how do I recover from a failure? How do I recover from a failure? We get to look at one of the most colossal failures in the Bible this morning. It's from John chapter 18. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll start with verse 12 and read through verse 27. John 18, verses 12 through 27. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Starting at John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. For they, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. You may be seated. So we continue this morning through the book of the Gospel of John. And oftentimes the The Apostle John is shown in stained glass windows with an eagle to portray the kind of thoughts that John gives us and the doctrines about Christ and John, which are considered high and lofty, which is why they're shown with an eagle. And I want to recite together again this morning the reason that God gave John this book. And we've been reading it together, so let's see if we can say the reference together before I put it up on the screen. It's John, say it with me, John twenty. 30 and 31, good job, good job. Way better than that first service, you all. You did way better than the first service. John 20, 30 and 31, let's read it together. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And this morning, I want to look at the, the characters, the people that come up in this story. First, we'll look at Jesus. He is the model of faithfulness when you are in a trial. But fortunately, we're also given Peter. And we'll take a look at Peter's failure. And God doesn't leave him there. We'll look at his restoration. And finally, we'll talk about our own recovery when we fail. And it is going to happen. We are going to fail. So let's first look at Jesus' faithfulness and his endurance under this stress. And we see these two stories intentionally intertwined. On the one hand, John is highlighting Jesus and his faithfulness, but then on the other hand, he's showing us Peter is not acting like Jesus. So we have both of these stories told together with Jesus in the foreground, then Peter in the background with all the details put in. And we start with Jesus, and he's going to undergo undergo a series of trials. He'll go through religious trials, which is what we have this morning, and he's on his journey to the crucifixion. He'll start with his religious trials, but then he'll also go through civil trials. Remember, this whole area is under the power of the Roman Empire. So the religious leaders, though, are going to start out trying Jesus. And there's a lot of concern about Jesus. We start out with this uh, high priest, Annas. He's an unofficial high priest. The high priests are not unlike uh, the president of the United States in the sense that even when you're not high priest, you still may be referred to as high priest, just like we continue to call a former president Mr. President. But there's also another layer in which he was removed from the priesthood by the Romans and that never set well with the Jews. So they'll continue to call him high priest, even though it's his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the official high priest that year. So we come now to verse 14, and look at what John reminds us of about Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Caiaphas, it's, it's a tragic irony that he said this. But Caiaphas thought that this man must be sacrificed if the nation was to continue in Rome's favor. Rome had an interesting relationship with Judaism. The Romans' culture, they actually liked that which was ancient. And since Judaism was ancient, there was a certain amount of respect for Jewish culture, although it was tenuous because they still had to exercise control over these Jews. And Jesus was a threat. And the Jewish leadership knew it. You see, Annas and his house were the ones in charge. Five of his sons were priests. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And they needed to keep their position. And they needed to warn the, the Romans in charge. Look, this man is claiming to be the king. Now it's a tense moment. Because Jerusalem is packed with Jews coming from all over the place because this was Passover. This kingship, Jesus claimed, jeopardized this very tenuous position these priests were in with the leaders of Rome. Now, Jesus' trial comes back into focus. And down in verse 19, we come back to Christ. And the interrogation story that John tells us is unique to the other Gospels. And it was the power of Jesus' popularity that was giving him his position and his platform in the eyes of the Jews and the Romans. So the initial questions that Jesus was asked were probably about the size of his following. They were trying to understand, are you trying to start some secret uprising here among those who are following you? What are you, what are you telling them and teaching them? Jesus was not some kind of political revolutionary like they were trying to, to pin on him. And he explains in these next verses, he says, look, he said, I've taught openly. There's no secret message being disseminated out there that I'm trying to cause some kind of underground among the Jews that are going to try and overthrow you. He said, that's, that's not why I'm here. And he invites Annas to question his hearers if they don't believe him. He's just asking for a, a fair trial. But the invitation was not taken well. And the logic of Jesus is met with violence. He's, he's hit across the, fl- the face See, these men don't like it. It's not about truth. They've been unmasked now. And if if they can't win fair and square, then they won't play fair and square. And they'll try to brutalize Christ into saying what they need him to say, but he doesn't apologize. See, Annas is getting nowhere with Jesus not the intimidation, not the cruelty. He sends Jesus to the reigning high priest. But why is it that Annas can't get anywhere? It's because Christ will not compromise. Why should he? He's expressing the truth here. Now, he is fully human. He knows the emotions of fear. He knows the emotions. None of that's going to stop him. He's going to say the truth. He's going to proclaim the truth in the face of death and danger, He knows where this is leading. He's enduring all this in his humanity. He's fully God and he's fully man. You see, God gives us the strength for trials when it's time to go through. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but he does give us the strength. If we look back in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, he says, had I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You know what? You're going to screw up, and it's going to cause you heartbreak and your family heartbreak. It's going to be hard at times, and things are going to be done to you. But what does he say? Take heart. Be courageous. I have overcome the world. There's a story of a Christian pastor from North Carolina and he spent 20 years in Turkey. He had a, a ministry there. It was quiet. He, it wasn't well known until 2016. There was a failed military coup. And he, as well as some activists and journalists, was taken to prison. He was arrested. He was labeled as a spy. He was held for over a year in a Turkish prison without any charges against him. He spent two years in prison, often during long trial sessions. At one point... It looked like he could be in that prison for decades. He just didn't know. Finally, he was pressured by uh, the American government, and he was set free. But when he was talking about this time, he was at Wheaton College at at chapel. He He said candidly to the students, he said, I didn't feel God's overwhelming presence during my stay in prison. He said, instead, I experienced something even deeper. He said, after a few days in prison, I completely lost the sense of God's presence. He said God was silent and he remained silent for two years. Then he was brought to a trial and he said things got even worse. He said, there are some who go into the valley of testing and some don't make it out. He said, I was broken. I lay there alone in my solitary cell. I had great fear, terrible grief. He said, I was weeping. And the thought kept going through my mind, where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And I opened my mouth as I wept aloud. And I was surprised at what I heard coming out of my mouth. He said, I heard the words, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. He he said, I thought, here's my victory. Even if you're silent, God, I still love you. Even if you let my enemy harm me, I love you. That's an incredible story. I mean... You know, I hope if I ever get put into a Turkish prison, this is how I'll behave, right? But the odds are I'm never going to get put into a Turkish prison. And there are tons of little tests and trials every single day that I fail at, which makes me so thankful that what is included in here is the story about Peter as well. And we see Peter's failure He's not in a courtroom. He's not in front of officials. This is more like the trials that you and I face every day uh, in the face of a watching world. And in verses 15 through 18, the focus shifts back to Peter, and another disciple had been following along as Jesus was arrested. They approach a courtyard outside the home of the high priest. In all likelihood, uh, Annas and Caiaphas all shared the same sort of compound they lived on. And the disciple with Peter continued into the home of the high priest. It's possible that disciple was John. He had a connection to the priesthood. Uh, That would be through his his mother was a cousin of Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's husband was Zachariah. So he could have been connected to the priesthood in that way. In any case, we find Peter alone outstanding by a fire. He's with people that are not the disciples. And he's recognized. There's a young woman there watching a door. And the way she would have said this sentence, it's, and there's a Greek construction to this sentence that it has an implied answer. She said something like, Now you weren't with him and one of his disciples, were you? You're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? You know, if, kind of like when your parents would say, Now you weren't with them, were you? There was an implied We really hope you're going to say no right now. Now, it could have been that this young lady would have had some responsibility. She may have had to have reported him if the answer had been yes. But uh, it's a question that would have been easy to have said no to. And she wasn't alone outside. Peter was standing there with slaves and officers. He was getting warm. He was literally getting warm, but figuratively he was really getting warm because the heat's getting turned up on him right now. And finally, he's going to succumb to the pressure. He answers the young one, I am not. And the scene shifts again, and now we're back with Peter. We're back at the charcoal fire pit with him and the others. And and now twice Peter will be asked about his connections to Jesus. In verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. He said, I am not. In Matthew 10, 33, you'll uh, identify this questioner as a woman as well, a slave woman. The tone is the same, though. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Same answer, no, I'm not. And then the last two verses of this section, 26 and 27. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And then the rooster crowed. Now this third question brought up the incident about the cutting off the man's ear. It, was probably, it could have been a relative and, and maybe the, the, a new log was thrown in the fire and, and it flickered up and he saw a flash of Peter's face and recognized him. But when the rooster crowed, it immediately takes the reader back to Christ's prediction that Peter would deny him. And he did. Jesus stood up to his questioners and denied nothing. But Peter, when he was challenged by a girl, he he, he denied everything. Peter denied Christ. He failed. You know, he stayed by the fire, but guess what? He couldn't take the heat. He was challenged by a girl. He denied everything. You see, Denials and faithlessness are just within reach of even the strongest of Christ's disciples. And I appreciate the way Eugene Peterson characterized Peter's failure. He said, Peter was a failure in ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed a hapless, blustering coward. In the most critical situations of his life with Jesus... The confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said embarrassingly inappropriate things. If you recall at that transfiguration, Jesus, Peter rather said, hey, let's let's build something to commemorate the moment. And the commentary, the commentary on that was he didn't know what he was talking about. Peterson goes on, he was not the companion we would want with us in a time of danger, and he was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with at a social occasion. And this happens. Trials come, and sometimes it's the little ones that we can fail at the most often. I know in my own life. Yeah, you know, there's things I don't want you to think about me, okay? I want people to think I'm like the confident John Wayne type, you know. But it's just not true. Because I've got insecurities I don't want you to know about. And I try to keep up a false image sometimes. So I'll laugh at jokes I know I shouldn't laugh at. And I'll cave. I feel miserable. And I'm sure you've messed up too. It can look like so many different things. Profanity, affairs, drunkenness. You think you've committed some unpardonable sin. But praise God, he's in the business of restoring us failed disciples. And even after John 18, you just flip just a couple pages over, and we have John 21, and when Jesus reappears to the disciples after his resurrection, Peter is going to be standing by a fire again. And Jesus is going to make breakfast for these men, and Peter, who denied him three times, he'll ask Peter, interestingly, three times, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. He denied him three times. But now the answer is yes, yes, yes. And he reveals to Peter, Jesus reveals that you are going to suffer for me. People someday are going to carry you somewhere you don't want to go. He was talking in all likelihood about the crucifixion that Peter is going to endure in the future. Peter's still the rock upon whom Christ will build his church. The man with whom God will entrust his bride, the church. And he'll follow Christ to the death. One commentators said this both for John's readers and the early church generally this is not Peter's final scene as serious as he was disowning of the master so greatly also we must esteem the grace that forgave him and restored him to fellowship and service and that means both in John's gospel and in our lives that there is hope for the rest of us You see, we have so many ways of saying it. You know, your trial will become your treasure. Your mess will become your message. Your test will become your testimony because God has a way of using even those worst parts of you to, as we said in our call to worship this morning, for his glory. Why did Paul boast about his weaknesses? Because he knew in his weakness that's where he made God look good. Because he was shedding off some kind of false identity of who people thought he was. Failure does not mean disqualification. So what do you do? Well, you recover. You get up. You get back at the game. How do you do that? Well, I'll suggest two ways as part of our recovery back in, into the service of God. First of all, you accept his forgiveness. You've got to accept his forgiveness. I don't... it. It is so hard to get into our heart and mind how deeply God loves us. So hard in my own life. To know that we are truly forgiven for all the stuff we've done. So we have to accept this forgiveness. He doesn't expect us to drag behind us all the junk of life and blame, and regret, and shame. God does not intend us to drag that along behind us. There's a wonderful promise back in uh, verse 37 of chapter 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God is rich, and what He is primarily rich in, what the Scriptures tell us He is rich in, is mercy. And He keeps pouring it out. There was something that it was written by Ortland in his book Gentle and Lowly. He said, If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your own way to heaven. Now, listen to this very carefully. He says, Perhaps you have difficulty receiving the rich mercy of God in Christ, not because of what others have done to you, because of what you've done to torpedo your life. Maybe through one big stupid decision or maybe through 10,000 little decisions. You squandered his mercy and you know it. Listen up. To you I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. So forgive yourself. Yeah, there is a false humility in trying to continue punishing yourself when God has said, Listen, you're forgiven. I don't intend you to live in isolation and and blame and regret. I don't intend you to live in that place. Accept his forgiveness and, and then forgive yourself. And then after you do that, then what do you do? Well, you take responsibility. You take responsibility. Now, it is possible that sometimes we make mistakes and we cannot serve in the way in which we were previously serving. But we are not out of the game. Peter knew he had responsibility. In in 2119, Jesus said, follow me. So what do you do? You follow Jesus. You follow him wherever he takes you. Praise God this morning. He brought you right here, right now. And it was not for no reason. Are you serving God's church in some way? Because we need help. Peter's going to continue. Peter's going to write two more letters, two books of the Bible. He's going to have a tremendous ministry. He's down, but he's not out. And look through the the pages we have out there on the welcome desk. Look, we need help. And you may think, no, I've screwed. No, you haven't, okay? You haven't screwed up so bad, God can't use you. That category doesn't exist. And we need, if, if I could get every single person in this church to take responsible, to take responsibility for something somewhere, I would. Because we've got, you know, there's pages out there on the welcome desk, colored pages, that tell you about different ways we need people to help here at First Baptist. You know, we had a guy a few weeks ago that came up to me and said, you know what, Chad, I just... I want to serve God some way. I want to help out here at the church. Man, that is music to this man's ears. Because we marched straight to my office, and man, did I have work for him to do. Now he's part of our men's ministry leadership team. And if you're struggling to figure out where you can serve here at First Baptist, call me. Call me. Please. So, If you're not dead, and I'm trusting that none of you are, if you're not dead, then guess what? You're not done. If you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. And until he calls you home to glory, you are to be here serving the body of Christ somewhere, some way, somehow. So get up and get busy. You failed, you failed, you've fallen, well, you'll fall again. It's okay. We all do. I want to close with a story about a man who I think embodied this in a really special way. I want to introduce you to a runner. His name's Shizo Kanakuri. And he qualified for the Olympics in Stockholm in 1912. And it was a long journey from Japan to Stockholm, Sweden. And along the journey, he was just not well. I mean, he was really feeling sick. And he, he lined up to run that marathon. And along the way, he collapsed unconscious. And there was a family who saw what had happened. So they, they took him into their home and they nursed him back to health. But he was so ashamed by what had happened that he couldn't bear to go back and explain to the Olympic officials what had happened. So he just slips on out, goes back to Japan, and he'd been listed as a missing person in Sweden. They didn't know what happened to him. And it took 50 years... Before discovering that he was living in Japan in 1967, he was offered the opportunity to finish that run. And guess what? He accepted it, and he had the worst marathon time in the history of the Olympics. It took him 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. He said this. He said, It was a long trip along the way. I got married, had six children, and ten grandchildren. But you know what? The Bible is full of stories of people who got up. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before God renewed his call. Peter denied Christ and went back to fishing, but Jesus restored him. Samson, John Mark, many others who eventually finished the race. And you know what? You could finish the race. You're here. You're alive. God's got more for you to do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you restore, that you forgive. Lord, when I fail time and time and time again, through thought or deed or word, Lord, you know when I've sinned, and yet you forgive me. I'm thankful, so thankful for the role I get to play at this church. And Lord, may I never do something that would disqualify me for this position. But Lord, even if that did happen, I trust that there would be something else or some other work you'd have me to do until you call me home to be with you, Lord. We know that if we're not dead, then we're not done. and We thank you that we get to be used for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.